Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. Um, thank you for uh, your prayers as I was away. Um, I appreciate uh, Pastor Bob coming up and filling in while I was gone, and now I owe him one. But, uh, we just uh, are so grateful to God, aren't we, for godly men that he has raised up to lead his people in various areas of his vineyard. It is uh, uh, just wonderful. Um, my uh, trip away in the conference uh, was quite profitable. It was, as I've mentioned to some, uh, boy, you know, I was in Texas. It's a different world. Um, you know, you're up here in the, the Northeast, and you have churches that are like us, sharing our doctrine and practice. And, praise God, this is what you can expect. You go to Texas, and the church in which the conference took place was essentially us with a Texas accent. And their sanctuary seats 5,000. <laughs> it, was, it was a different world, as I say. And praise God for it. Praise God for them. We need to keep the Church of Christ in our prayers. Not only our own church, but all of our brothers and sisters around the world. Well, we're back in Luke this morning, Luke chapter 7, so if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me. Luke chapter 7, beginning with 36, and we'll be going through the end of the chapter this morning. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, the him of course being Jesus, And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is, who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears 
and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, just reading through the text of your word this morning, we can see just how much there is here packed into this passage. And so we need your help in the time that we have together, Father. Bring out of your word those things which you have for your people this morning. This we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who heals. The one who redeems. The one who forgives. Amen. I am of a generation which grew up with reruns of a television show called I Love Lucy. Now, this was on originally before I was born, but all I remember growing up seems like every time you turn on the television, there's Lucy. And so I think I have seen every episode of that show multiple, multiple times. If you remember that show, then you remember that they often had big names in the entertainment industry of the 50s appear as guest stars. So if you're of a certain age, you'll recognize names like William Holden. John Wayne was on the I Love Lucy show. And in several episodes, the guest star was someone named Tennessee Ernie Ford. He was largely known as a country western singer at the time, and he kind of got more famous from being on the I Love Lucy program. Uh, When he was on the show, he portrayed a character from the hills of Tennessee named Cousin Ernie. And Cousin Ernie had come to New York City, and the hook upon which the entire episode revolved was the fact that before he left to come to the big city, his mother warned him, told him to beware of those wicked city women. And if Cousin Ernie had lived in first century Israel, his mother would have warned him about the woman in our story this morning. She would have been the first century equivalent of the wicked city woman. In fact, in verse 37, we're told that there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. As we begin to examine this portion of Luke's gospel, it helps to uh, have a little bit of background information. First, we need to take note of the fact that this story takes place in a um, formal dinner party taking place in ancient Israel. That's important to know because in those days... 
formal dinner parties often took place in an open courtyard. They were public events in which the neighbors felt free to stand around the sides of the courtyard to observe the dinner party as it was taking place. Well, you've, you've got no TV. Right? This, is, this is your entertainment. Your neighbors are having a party. You know? So, you know, put this... Um, you know, in your own context, you're having a private little party there in your backyard, and your neighbors, with nothing better to do, are hanging over your fence, just watching what's going on, listening to your conversations, treating you and your party as their evening's entertainment. Well, the second bit of information we need to understand is that it was customary for the host of a dinner party to greet his invited guests with three things. And they're things that are mentioned in our passage. A kiss of welcome, water for their feet, and oil to anoint their heads. The kiss was a mark of affection. The water allowed a servant or a child of the host or the host himself uh, to wash the dust from his guest's feet And the oil was rubbed on the forehead as a kind of aromatic perfume, presumably because deodorant wasn't yet a thing. The parallel in our day would be shaking hands or or a hug, taking someone's coat, offering them something to drink after they arrive, finding them a place to sit. Just very common things that everyone would have expected. The kiss and the water and the oil were simply common courtesies offered to anyone who you had invited into your home, and to omit them was a breach of etiquette and an act, to some degree, of disrespect. Now, with that background, let's look at the story. The story is really a drama in five acts. And just as we find our seats, the curtain rises on Act 1. And as we gaze at the stage, we see a low table set in the middle of the courtyard. It's most likely U-shaped, with couches arranged, pillows there, so that the guests can recline with their legs facing outward. That's going to be important later on. Immediately, we're introduced to the man who will be the central character of this story, one of the central characters at least, Simon the Pharisee. And this itself is a surprise. This man has invited Jesus to his house for dinner, and it is a surprise, of course, because most of the time Jesus didn't really get along with the Pharisees too well. But Simon was different, apparently. Simon liked to be around influential people. It made him feel good to rub shoulders with the movers and shakers, and Jesus was causing quite a commotion at this time. It doesn't seem at all that he was committed to Jesus or to his mission, but he thought having Jesus over to dinner might make for an interesting evening. After all, this was intended to be a casual meal, low-key, no, no big deal, that way he wouldn't risk offending all of his more orthodox friends among the Pharisees. And so it happens that Jesus 
has come this day to the house of a Pharisee for dinner. And all is going well as the curtain falls on Act 1. As it rises for Act 2, from stage left, an unidentified woman enters. And she walks around the table and she stops at the place where Jesus is reclining. The scripture is very discreet in its description of her. But it's not hard to see through the tactful words. This is a wicked city woman. Luke says that there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. A delicate way of saying she was a prostitute. She made her living by selling her body. And so after the shock of Act 1, in which Jesus and a Pharisee sit down together to dine, we have the greater shock of Act 2, in which this wicked city woman comes into the house of the Pharisee. Now in ordinary times, Simon and this woman would never meet. He would not go near a woman like her. If he's walking down the street and she's coming the other way, he would cross the street. They are from opposite ends of the societal and, from his perspective, moral spectrum. Yet, strangely, they are now thrown together for the same purpose. They both want to be with Jesus. For different reasons, clearly, but that is their goal. It becomes clear just a little further on in verse 39 that people knew who and what this woman was. Verse 39, we read that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, the woman, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. So he already knows. How does he know? Well, they're from the same city. And we're not talking about Manhattan here. Cities in first century Israel are pretty small. If you don't know everybody personally, you at least know everyone's station. And someone like this woman would have a reputation that everyone would know of. And so Simon knows, and he himself calls her a sinner... We've already read she'd lived her sinful life in that city. It's also obvious she knew something about Jesus. Most likely she had heard Jesus preach. She has believed his message and she has responded to him in faith, thereby experiencing his love and mercy. And what she is doing now is in response to what God has done in her. Certainly that would explain what we're seeing here in Luke's account. She comes to the party because her life has already been changed and she wants to express this newfound love for Jesus. But Simon isn't aware of this. Simon doesn't get it. He doesn't know how God works. Simon doesn't understand repentance. Simon doesn't understand conversion. And so, no doubt, as this begins to happen, there are 
whispers around the table and from those hanging over the fence. There are quick flashes of disapproval. Eyes begin to meet, and they're questioning what exactly is going on here. You can see it in what Simon says there in verse 39. Jesus is supposed to be a prophet. And according to Simon's way of thinking, if he was a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this is. And he wouldn't let her within ten feet of his feet. So why is she here? And why is he allowing her to do what she's doing? And so everyone's eyes are drawn to her. She's now become the center of attention. Given her profession, this woman surely was a good judge of men. She sees them as they are. She has heard every promise, every come on, every cover up. She's seen it all, and she knew Jesus is different. He was not going to use her and throw her away. She heard in the Savior's words the promise of a way out, a way in which this ugly, empty life that she had lived can be changed transformed. And Simon watches, unbelieving, as this woman does something which must have shocked everyone. Standing behind him, verse 38 says, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. That'll stop the festivities in their tracks. You are (laughs) really putting a damper on the party here. We're having a nice dinner together. Everybody's having a good time. And here comes this woman just weeping. And then while she's weeping, she bends down at the feet of Jesus And you get the sense, don't you, that she is not aware of anything else that's going on. She she just doesn't even realize that there are other people there. There is a table full of people. There are neighbors watching over the fence. And it And none of it registers because all she sees is Jesus. And all she knows is Jesus won't turn her away. What she knows is that Jesus loves her. And she's going to respond to that in this incredibly intimate way. Now, we're told that she stood behind him and at his feet. And that there seems to us to be a, a strange way of describing their relative positions. Right? How do you stand behind someone and at their feet? 
And of course, what we need to remember is what we mentioned earlier. Jesus and Simon and whatever other guests were there are not sitting at a table in chairs. They were reclining on pillows on the floor. That's how you ate in the ancient Mideast. And so their heads would have been toward the table, most likely reclining on an elbow, and their body stretched out behind them. And so she stands behind him at his feet, and she has clear access when she wants to wash his feet with her tears. So there she is, standing behind him at his feet. She intends to anoint Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. She has brought, verse, at the end of verse 37 we see, she has brought an alabaster vial of perfume. But she begins to cry, and she can't stop crying. And as she cries, her tears fall upon Jesus' feet. Which I'm sure Jesus would have seen as a far greater act than if she had poured the perfume on his feet. Tears are far more valuable than perfume. And she dries his feet with her hair, and she smothers his feet with kisses, and finally she does anoint his feet with the perfume. Why is she weeping? Because she loves Jesus, and she's not afraid to show it. I know a lot of us here, we're Baptists. We're a Baptist church. And so for some who are raised in a particular kind of Baptist church, there is sometimes a hesitancy to be what we might call demonstrative. Get over that, please. <laughs> I, I, I have had so many come and say, Pastor, oh, wow, you know, when, when we sang that or when, when you, were, you were preaching this, boy, I just felt like screaming amen. And I was like, well, why not? Why not? What you need to understand, brothers and sisters, if, if you're in that kind of place where you're a little bit hesitant and you think if you say anything, everybody's going to turn around and look at you, First of all, that doesn't happen. I can tell you. I'm standing up here. I see everything. And when somebody says amen, I don't see every head in the place turning to look at you. Okay? We love you, but you're not that important. All right? Nah, it's just, okay. But the other thing I want you to know is that when that happens, that is such an encouragement to me, And it's something that the Spirit of God uses as I'm seeking to communicate his word. When I'm standing here and preaching and wondering if anybody's listening, right? If you're breathing, right? Any preacher will tell you it's a lot harder, okay? Because what starts going through your mind is, am I just missing it entirely? Is everybody just 
bored stiff. This has nothing to do with where anyone is in their life. I know it's not the word. So the only other explanation is that it's me. I don't like to be self-conscious like that. I remember when we were in, in, um, living in, in Denver, we were in, I, I was in seminary, and the church that I was on staff on uh, in, uh, staff on in, in, I was on the staff in a church in Aurora, Colorado, and me and the other guys on the staff went to the inner city of Denver, and we spent the day uh, with a pastor down there, right? African-American pastor, great guy. And as we were standing around at the end of our visit, we prayed together. We stood in a circle, and we took hands, and we prayed together. And as I was praying, this brother is doing what, you know, the rest of us young white seminarians didn't typically do. He was talking to us. I'm praying and he's responding as I'm praying. And there was a noticeable difference in my praying as a result of that. And I know it was noticeable because other people mentioned it afterwards. Paul talks about conducting the ministry of the church in such a way that people are able to say the amen. Right? Now when we talk about saying the amen, what we're talking about is agreement. We're talking about something being prayed or spoken in which the people of God can come alongside and say Absolutely. Yes. That's right. I'm in agreement with that. Right? So, you know, not everybody has to do this. There, you know, all kinds of cultural things are coming into play, and people are different, and I understand that. But, boy, if the Spirit of God is moving in you, and the Word of God is affecting you, it's okay. That's all I want to say. It's okay. You don't have to, right? If you don't, we're not keeping track. There's not going to be church discipline as a result of you being too quiet, right? But if you feel like it, there's nothing wrong with emotion. We are to be affected by the truth. Where emotion comes into play in a negative way is when that is the focus. But when it is a response to the truth of God, it is a glorious thing. And I just want to let you know, it's a welcome thing. Here is a woman who was not ashamed to cry because of what God had done in her. 
She had come to understand something that she had not known before. And it caused her to weep. And she's responding to that in a very natural and godly way. And so this fallen woman caresses Jesus, but Simon is scandalized. He would never let a woman like that touch him. The whole thing was disgusting. He was revolted by it. It was dirty to him. And as the curtain falls on this second act, Simon is pondering what he has just seen. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, verse 39, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And obviously, the explanation to this is, Jesus ought not be allowing her to do this. There's something wrong with this. But there is nothing wrong. Now, as the curtain rises on Act 3, we can see Jesus, and on his face, he knows exactly what Simon is thinking. And so he tells him a little story. Jesus answers him. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replies, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? A nice, simple story. But then there's that question at the end. Jesus doesn't just tell stories for the sake of telling stories. Pastors sometimes have this issue. They're studying through the week. They're, they're you know, putting their, their message together. And they come across this great illustration. And it has nothing to do with what they're going to be preaching about. But it's a great story. And it's just too good to leave back in the office or to save for some other time. So they just tell this story and they try to twist it and wrench it into whatever they're talking about and you just when that's happening you know like this no he's he just likes the story it has nothing to do it doesn't add to the message at all it doesn't clarify anything Jesus never does that he's always got a purpose for what he does and so he asks this $64,000 question which of them will love him more? Now, at this point, you have to believe Simon smells a trap. He's a little cautious in his answer. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus responds, you have judged correctly. So what does this mean? In Simon's eyes, the woman was the one who owed the 500 denarii. Now, denarii, of course, is a day's wage at this point. We talk about, Jesus tells other stories 
about day laborers who come and they're getting paid a day's wage and a day's wage is a denarii. So we're talking about a pretty significant sum here for most people of the day. And Simon sees this woman as the one who, who has the greater debt. Her debt to God was enormous because in Simon's eyes, she was an enormous sinner. Compared to her, Simon would look at himself and says, say, you know, yeah, I probably have some kind of debt, but it's really nothing compared to her. Maybe 50 compared to 500. But of course, the size of the debt is not the point, is it? If you can't pay a debt, it doesn't matter how much you owe. If I owe $10, but I don't have $10, I might as well owe a million. I still owe. So in that sense, there's no difference between owing a little and owing a lot, especially if you don't have any money and you have no way to repay the debt. Jesus is describing a situation in which every man, woman, and child find ourselves. We all are in debt to God, and none of us can pay back a penny of what we owe. Here's the gospel message. God is willing to forgive all debtors equally, no matter the size of their debt. He is willing to wipe the slate clean. He is willing to declare our debt satisfied in full. And he will do that for anyone who is willing to admit that they do have such a debt and will turn from their sin in repentance and place their trust solely in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's all about debt. The gospel is economic. You owe that which you cannot repay. And God, to whom you owe the debt, said, listen, I'll take care of the debt. It's not that the debt won't be paid. It will be paid. But you don't have to pay it. Because God sent his own son to pay it. He is the substitute. Jesus died on the cross in order to pay that debt in his own blood. And he rose from the dead so that we might be declared righteous before God. Understand then what Jesus is saying to Simon. He's saying, Simon, there is fundamentally no difference between you and this woman. This one whom you have called a sinner, as if you're not. The nature of the debt is the same. If you were to have the, 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 the guest list of all those attending that dinner party, you could make two columns. On one side would be listed the righteous, and on the other side would be listed the sinners, the debtors. And on the righteous column, you would only have one name. That would be Jesus. And everybody else would be on the other side. Everyone else, whether prostitute or Pharisee. And remember, please, when we talk about Pharisees, we're bringing a lot of knowledge to the concept. Those of us who know the scripture know that as you're reading through the Gospels, Pharisees are wearing black hats. They're the bad guys. 
right? They're constantly trying to trap Jesus. Jesus is constantly at odds with them. But if you were an everyday, average Jew in the first century in Israel, you would have looked at the Pharisees as the righteous ones. These are holy men. These are men who live upright, honorable, respectable lives. These are men who are concerned with the law of God. And so to talk to a Pharisee and say, as Jesus is saying, (laughs) you're no better than a prostitute. That is a revolutionary concept. And yet that is what Jesus is saying. Whether humanly speaking, one is the best of the best or the worst of the worst, everyone stands condemned before a righteous and holy God. Because no one is good, not one. Everyone is in need of a Savior. And there is only one Savior. He is the one whose name is listed in that righteous column. And because his name is listed in that column, because he alone is righteous, he alone can atone for sin. He alone can pay our debt. He alone can be our substitute. Act 4. Jesus turns to the woman for the first time. Turning toward the woman, verse 44. So the the, the picture you need to have here is that while everybody else who was witnessing this have their eyes on the woman, Jesus is just reclining at the table, taking some food, drinking a little wine. This woman is weeping over his feet, and Jesus is just going about his business. Until now. Turning toward the woman. Now, interesting, as he turns toward the woman, he doesn't speak to the woman. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. So he's looking at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? And the reality is that Simon did not see this woman. He saw a sinner, but he didn't see the woman. To him, she was not a person. She was a thing. She was representative of a category. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning to us. As we go out into the world and we seek to share the gospel with people, there is a danger that we will view the people that we come in contact with as representatives of a category. Sinners. Unbelievers. Worldly ones. When what Jesus is showing us is that everybody we come in contact with is a person, an individual. 
an individual who needs to know the truth, who needs to come to a knowledge of the Savior. But the reality is Simon didn't see this woman that way. He didn't care about her enough to see who she really was. And so Jesus, because he did see her, begins to make a comparison which would have been the most startling thing among all of the startling things that Simon had uh, had to process that evening. He systematically exposes the shabby treatment that he had received from Simon. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, you get some background to this when you get to the Last Supper. Why did Jesus wash the feet of his disciples? It's because when he and his disciples came into the upper room, nobody made a move to get the basin and a towel. Why? Because the one who was responsible for washing the feet of the people who came into a room like that was the least. Servants. There were no servants. The youngest sons. The least. And no one among the disciples wanted to say, I get it, I'm the least. I'll wash everybody's feet. Now, it was a disgusting job, frankly. You know, it's very hot in Israel, and you're walking around. Nothing's paved at this time. Everything's dust, and you're sweating, and the dust is sticking to the sweaty feet. And now you come in, which is exactly why feet needed to be washed. And it's also why it was traditionally left to the least among whoever was gathered. And Jesus now turns to Simon and say, you know what? Your responsibility was to wash my feet, but you couldn't bring yourself to humble yourself to the point at which you would do it. This woman has washed my feet with her tears. She's dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. There was no warm greeting. It's as if you invited me to be your entertainment for the evening. But there's no sense of affection, no warmth, no friendship here. This woman, from the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't do that, which is just expected as a common courtesy. But this woman has come, and she has anointed my feet with perfume. You know the religion. You know the temple. You know the sacrifices. You know the law. She knows none of that, but you missed the whole point, and she got it. Simon's problem is easy to see. He thought he was better than the woman. He also thought he was better than Jesus, frankly. Simon said, she's a sinner. Jesus says, no, she's mine. Simon simply had no category in which to place a former prostitute. 
whose life had been radically changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so before the curtain falls, Jesus speaks again in verse 47 and says, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And what he's intending to communicate to Simon is that Simon, whether he knows it or not, is in the other category. He doesn't love because he doesn't see that he has been forgiven of anything worth forgiving. This was the, Pharisee, the pharisaical problem. Now Jesus is not saying the worse you are, the more you're forgiven. He's saying the greater your sense of your own need of forgiveness, the greater will be your love when you are forgiven. Because everybody has the same need. It's just a matter of whether we realize it or not. And how... Uh, to, to the, it's a matter of whether we understand the reality of our own sinfulness. You will have gratitude and love in exact proportion to your sense of your sinfulness. If you think you've been greatly forgiven, you will love God greatly. If you think you've only been forgiven a little, you'll only love God a little. Your understanding of his grace is connected to your understanding of your own sin. Simon was right about one thing and wrong about one thing. He thought there was a sinner at his party. He was right about that, but he was wrong about the woman. He was wrong about the identity of that sinner. She wasn't the sinner that night. She had been forgiven. He was the sinner, and he didn't get it. Well, our little drama is almost over. One act remains. As the curtain rises on this final act, Jesus speaks to the woman for the first time. And he says three things to her. Verse 48 says that he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. That takes care of her past. Your faith has saved you. That's her present. Go in peace. That deals with her future. That's all. Notice what he doesn't say. He never says, don't sell your body anymore. He doesn't have to. She's been set free. What about Simon? He got more in this dinner party than he bargained for. He planned a casual affair using Jesus as his entertainment, and it blew up in his face. And as the curtain falls on our drama, we are left to wonder just who is this story about? Simon? The prostitute? Jesus? Simon's problem was not really that he couldn't see the woman. It was that he couldn't see Jesus. Simon's problem was that he, 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 he couldn't see himself in the light of what he sees in Jesus. Simon says, I owe nothing. And so he risked nothing. The woman said, I owe everything. And so she risked everything.
It's strange, isn't it? The worst sinners often make the best saints. Because flagrant sinners are more likely to discover that they are sinners. Here's the abiding truth from this story. Your love for the Lord is directly related to your estimate of how greatly you have sinned and how much you have been forgiven. It is not how much you sin, but how deeply you feel it. You experience it. You understand it. That's what matters. Those outside of Christ are all dead in sin. Our judgment of the severity of sin really doesn't come into play. If you're dead, you're dead. And if you figure that you are a little sinner, if you think about things that way, then all you need is a little savior. If you're a moderate sinner, you need a moderate savior. But if you're a great sinner, you need a great savior. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't reduce himself to meet our expectations. You can't come to Jesus and say, I'm not really that bad, but I'll take whatever you you need to do to cover the problem that I do have. The response of Jesus would simply be, you just have no idea. You're not living in reality. You don't know your need. Jesus doesn't deal with little sinners. Jesus deals with us. Jesus' blood was not shed to cover insignificant sin. Jesus' blood was shed to cover sin that is of such seriousness that it kills us spiritually and separates us from God. And we were born into that condition. And because we were born into that condition... That condition manifested itself from earliest days. Before you could say, no, mommy. The problem is that we are all, to one degree or another, Simon. We are all great sinners, but none of us really understand the greatness of our sin. The reality is, not even this woman understood the greatness of her sin. We can't, because we're not God. And we don't know the extent of our sinfulness unless God shows us. And we are not capable of understanding the reality of who we are. We can come to acknowledge that we are great sinners and we are in need of a great Savior. But in this life, we're going to come to the end and we're never really going to understand. But God does. And God gives us the gift of repentance. And he gives us the gift of faith. And he draws us to his son, and he wipes the slate clean. This is our redemption. Brothers and sisters, this is what God has done. He has changed us. This is grace. Grace is not something small and meager that God doles out with a teaspoon. He pours it out. 
even when we don't know how much we need, God does. And he grants it to us. We are so guilty we could never pay the debt that we owe. We've been forgiven more than we can ever comprehend. We need to praise God for that. As strange as this might seem, the story presents us with a clear choice. We can be like Simon, or we can be like the woman. Just think about that. Luke included this story so that we would be challenged to become more like the repentant prostitute than the self-righteous Pharisee. The fact that we feel uncomfortable with that says a lot more about us than it does about the Bible. People raised in the church tend to struggle more with spiritual pride than those who are raised outside the church. The flip side of that is true as well. The worst sinners often make the best saints because they never forget where they came from, what God has delivered them from. That's why when God wanted a man to bring the gospel to Europe, he found a terrorist named Saul. And he stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus. And when Christ saved him, the terrorist became a flaming evangelist and perhaps the single greatest Christian that the world has ever known. Since we are all sinners, we all stand in need of the grace of God. There is no room for spiritual pride. No room for spiritual pride. There's no need to talk about who's better and who's worse because apart from the grace of God, we're all going to hell. We can choose to be with Simon and play it safe. And in the end, we will be sorry. Or we can be like the woman who smothered Jesus' feet with her tears. If you're like the woman keenly aware of your own sin, desiring a new life, desiring forgiveness of everything in your past, then I have good news for you. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you have done, doesn't matter how bad or unpopular your sin may be, doesn't matter how far down into the pit you find yourself at this very moment, if you will come to Christ, he will not turn you away. He was and is a friend of sinners. And if you qualify as a sinner, and you do, he'll be your friend too. He will be your savior. He will be your redeemer. He will be your Lord. If you're like Simon, there's good news for you as well. But you first must understand that your religion and your self-righteousness won't save you. In fact, you've got to give up your trust in your own righteousness. Simon was just as far from heaven as that woman was. It's either all by grace or it's not by grace at all. If you, up to this point in your life, have been thinking about your relationship with God, as I once thought about my relationship with God, then your thinking needs to change. When I was a child... I had the typical view of how one gets into heaven. There are, there's this set of cosmic scales. Good on one side, bad on the other. And if my good outweighs the bad, I'm in. Problem is, 
there is nothing on the good side of the scale. Nothing. And when you begin to understand that, when you are ready to humble yourself, you discover that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Even self-righteous religious people can be saved if they will repent of their self-righteousness and come to faith in Christ. When we stand before our Lord, survey the glories of heaven, all pride is going to vanish. We will begin to sing with full understanding the words of the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. A wretch. I was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. And I didn't find myself. And I didn't give myself new eyes. God did it by his grace. Now, if you hear that, as so many that I've spoken to, a wretch? If you hear that, and your pride rises up, and you say, I am no wretch. I may have some issues here and there, but I'm no wretch. Then you don't understand your sin. And you are far from God. Listen to the word of God. As God describes who you are, dead in sin, having done nothing righteous, having whatever righteousness you think you have identified by God as filthy rags, That is who you are. Recognize that and repent. And fall at the foot of the cross where there is forgiveness. There is redemption. Father, thank you for your grace. We are so grateful. We are so grateful, Father. There is nothing that we could have done, but you did it all. Thank you for it, Father. Help us to see our sin, not to break us down, but so that we might rejoice in your grace. These things, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.